VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, June the 27th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get the week off to a flying start. That can only happen if you join us live on the air. The topic of your choosing. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. All right. Let's go. Alex and the Hook and the Colorado Avalanche win the Stanley Cup. I'm still a bit over the moon, kind of still vibrating with excitement. I know he's not my child, but I think like many people in the province, even the casual hockey fans, got behind Newhook just because it's just so incredible. What an achievement. What a rookie season. 21 years of age, becomes the third Newfoundlander and Labradorian to win the Cup, of course, following in the footsteps of Danny Cleary and Michael Ryder. It's just all, it's all brilliant. And, you know, you need your big guy, big time guys to step up. And McKinnon wasn't doing much in the finals. You know, a couple of points last night, a beautiful goal. They only gave up four shots. There's the offensive juggernaut. Looked like the best defensive team ever in the third period last night. They only gave up four shots to the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions. Alex's sister Abby was there in attendance. There's a great photograph at VOCM.com if you want to see. Just check out our website. Go to that particular story, and you'll see Abby up in Alex's arms. And, you know, just even the way that the Stanley Cup presentation goes on. So, fellow uh, draft pick in the same year that Alex was taken 16th overall, Bone Byram was drafted as well. Byram gives Newhook the cup. It's just so great. You you know full well that when we have circumstances like this and big victories and big achievements, whether it be on the cultural stage or the sporting stage, it does indeed inspire a lot of folks. The numbers of people who have sent me photographs of their, whether it be adults and or their children, wearing the 18 Newhook Avalanche jersey is unbelievable. I'm sure that he feels the support. I'm sure he gets lots of messages of encouragement and for of congratulations last night and today. So even if you want to pepper us with a little bit of thought and commentary on what you saw achieved last night by young Newhook, 21 years of age, just amazing stuff. And on a separate note from the victory, I'm so pleased for him, for him, his family, all his friends. Congratulations, Alex. Couldn't happen to a better kid. They're going to have to do something about how late in the season the Stanley Cup playoffs take place, though. Come the finals, you know, really battling ice conditions, and it makes for some potentially unsafe conditions and or some bouncy pucks and whatnot, but I'm sure that's not the primary concern today. But you know where I was starting this morning? Pretty blurry-eyed, too, so let's not have a slow Monday. I want to throw out a couple more sporting congratulations to the boys under 15 and boys under 16 soccer teams participating in the Atlantics this past weekend in Halifax. The under-15s beat New Brunswick in penalties. Congratulations, Ben Collingwood, my nephew, plays net for the U-15s. And the U-16s beat PEI 1-0, both undefeated in the entire tournament. Really proud day for Newfoundland and Labrador soccer. My understanding is that the girls' teams in both of those age divisions also got medals, trying to confirm what color they were. So if you know and you're listening this morning, please send me an update so we can give them their shout-outs as well here on the program. You know... You don't need to be in organized sports to have an active lifestyle. I mean, you can go out in the park and throw around the Frisbee. You can just go skimming rocks at the park, whatever, right? Just get out and do something. It would be nice if the province could find out some sort of mechanism, as opposed to the physical activity tax credit, up to $2,000 per family, certainly very helpful, but it won't include any additional young 
people from the province. Because if the family can't afford it up front, then they can't wait for a tax credit. So I know it's a lot more cumbersome to try to get that support in hand so that they can pay the registration fee, but I'm sure we can figure it out to see more and more youngsters involved in organized sport. All right, let's keep going. Not only the excitement tough time sleeping last night, but the humidity. Whoa, just absolutely wicked. And the forecast, a lot of really warm days coming up in the future this week and next, albeit some rain included, but temperatures in the 20s almost every single day in the 14-day forecast. Read an interesting story this morning, you know, given the fact that June is the beginning of hurricane season. There's a forecast for an above-average number of these weather events this hurricane year. So, you know, this is not about being worried or afraid. It's just a bit about preparedness. You know what happens when we have the forecast that says, well, here it comes, like last year in Hurricane Larry, right? So as opposed to all hands running for the preparedness kits when we see the forecast, maybe we can just spare ourselves a bit of that hustle and bustle and the 11th hour purchasing by just making sure that you know what the risks are in your own home, what you may need, you know, some stuff on hand to last you some 72 hours. A couple of liters of water per person per day, lasting up to whatever, three or four days. Because you never know, because we've seen what it means for power outages and what have you. But maybe it's just an opportunity to have a quick look around the house and see how you can and should prepare. All right. I eavesdropped an interesting conversation one day last week. And I just read a news story that was along the lines. And this fellow, he obviously runs his own business. And his people have been working from home since the beginning of the pandemic, all the, th- the entire time, up until now. And he said that they're being told to come back to work, back into the office. He went on to say that some of that thought is because now with the nice summer days and the prevalence of COVID that is manageable, as many people think, and it seems to be, that as opposed to having the flexibility and the balance that the workers have had, his employees have had, now that it's so nice out, maybe they'll be more inclined to be out and about and maybe not working as hard or as efficiently or as productive as they were. I don't know if that makes much sense, but for many people, it has been an opportunity to learn to enjoy working from home. Now, with small children and what have you, we know there's been a real strain on families, no question about it, but some people are just getting quite used to it and enjoying the flexibility, and saving on the gas for their commute, what have you. So, in the world of the private sector versus the public sector, I guess the conversations are a little bit different. In the public sector, we've been told, and this should have been the case all the while, whether it be at the provincial level or the federal level, and this is not a criticism aimed at unionized employees or nothing, simply not. I wonder what we did to measure productivity and efficiency. It seemed like things were going pretty well. Certainly my buddies in the private sector who were working from home, they had good years. And their productivity bonuses were better than years prior to the pandemic. But we were told consistently and constantly that things are getting done. But at the exact same time, we see some significant backlogs. If things were being done efficiently in the world of uh, passports, then why is it so damn bloody difficult to get a passport now? You know, what what went on there? Just one second, sip of coffee. So we got the passport backlog. I also read a story this morning where a lady from Ukraine came to Lab City recently, and she's a veterinarian, mature veterinarian, surgical skilled veterinarian. It's going to take two or three years for her to get her accreditation to practice as a vet in Lab City because of a backlog. 
So while we're told that everything is going fine and counter service may not be restored because there is a transition to the digital world, we understand that. But someone help me square that circle. Why are there so many backlogs if work was being attended to and getting done? You know, there was a real, there was a rush on services. It's easy to understand why Service Canada was bombarded because so many people needed to turn to programs that were uh, worked on at Service Canada. People weren't traveling, so what happened to the passport staff? You know, it's just one of these curious things where why is it so unbelievably difficult? And in the world of this Ukrainian uh, veterinarian, we know there was also a female doctor from Ukraine that made her way to St. John's. How tangly is it going to be for her to set up shop and be able to practice? We all are painfully aware of what's going on in the healthcare system and the lack of healthcare workers in a variety of fronts. So where are these backlogs? And here we are two years later, and there's still no CEO at Central Health. Now, the board goes on to say that Ms. Robichaud, who re resigned a couple of years ago, moved immediately to New Brunswick, she's been engaged and her performance is up to snuff. That's just a paraphrase of what the board had to say. But how was that not attended to? The defense is being offered that, well, in the health court and in the most recent budget, the move towards amalgamating all four regional health authorities under one banner. Of course, to be led by David Diamond, the current CEO of Eastern Health. There's legislative changes required for that to happen, but how did that search get derailed? And I think folks in the Central Health region will ask justifiable questions. You know, what has that actually meant? There are so many issues to be broached by leadership. And if it turns out that we did not need someone on hand if right here in the province in that role, you know, begs a few other questions about the amalgamation and how it's going to work. There are jobs going to be lost. There must be redundancies in the system. But then the next question to be asked by communities and regions are where are all these jobs going to be? It is not going to be accepted if all of a sudden the significant, mar the significant percentage of jobs are all in town. Right? That's not going to work. People do indeed need to have some executive or managerial representation where they live. And I think most notably in Labrador Grenfell. So be nice to have a better understanding about where all of these jobs actually going to be. All right, you want to talk about that? Let's go. Also, last week, Thursday and Friday, I think, was a symposium to look at high schoolers and how the last three years have worked during the pandemic and the concept of learning loss. It's real, and we've got to figure it out because you can't wait until it's too late into their post-secondary career where they're falling so far behind or they simply can't keep up with the work. We know that the Marine Institute and CNA and Memorial University have said they understand, and they're going to do what they can to teach the children or these students where they are. That becomes a dog's breakfast. So educators know much more about it than I do, obviously. But, you know, in the past where there was a move away from the traditional assessments and public exams and what have you, okay. But now with all these interruptions and the very real possibility of learning loss, without the traditional assessments, we really don't have the data on hand to have targeted approach to put the supports where they're required. So that's, I think, the downside of not having some of these standardized tests that we all, you know, it's not about, well, I had to do it when I was a kid, so they should do it. It's not that at all. But now we have very little data that can be easily used by the department or the district to talk about what the summer needs to look like, what kind of additional supports need to be in place at whatever grade level or at the post-secondary institutions to have a clear understanding of where the students are. So uh, I'd love to hear what went on in that symposium in that meeting room and what they're choosing to do about it. Okay, let's keep going with the politics for a second. 
So the PCs have set their leadership dates, whether it be to begin the process on the eventual date where someone will indeed be the next leader, some, was it, uh, October 2023. Mr. Brazel, David Brazel, the interim leader who's been in the position since Chess Crosby stepped down after the last provincial election where he lost his own seat in Windsor Lake. Apparently the members are quite pleased with Mr. Brazel's performance and he's being encouraged to run and he's going to be allowed to do so. You know, for so many parties at the provincial and federal level, when someone stepped in in an interim role, they were not allowed to run for the full-time position. But in this case, PCs can do as they see fit with their own party constitution. So it looks like Mr. Brazel is going to take a run at it. I don't know if there's been any other names bandied about. But that's one part of the story. The other part here is we all know that there's a lot of money in politics for ongoing operations and certainly ramping up when they go to campaign. Now, there's no rules have been broken. There's nothing wrong, except maybe we just have to have more of these conversations about democratic reform. This is not a knock on Chess Crosby. Mr. Crosby can do as he sees fit with his own money. In the last year, Mr. Crosby donated $300,000 to his own party. That's 40% of their overall bank, bank account. That's a big number. So a couple of big donations jumped off the page. One of $50,000 and one of $250,000. There was a couple other big ones, 15000 from Fortis. There were eight donations of $10,000. So Mr. Crosby can do as he sees fit, as I said. It wasn't that long ago either that former Premier Ball and his leadership campaign donated to his own campaign in excess of $230,000. So it's happened in the past and across the board with different parties. It's one thing when the politician makes the donation to, in essence, themselves. But it does keep the door open for these whopping big sums to be donated from outside entities, individuals, businesses, and otherwise. There's a problem there. You know, Mr. Crosby or, or Mr. Ball weren't going to get any, anything in addition to them serving as the leader and or the premier, right? So there is a difference. But what happens when someone else makes a donation of that size? Whether it be they are buying or currying favor, it's the optics. That's what people worry about, is that it looks like and feels like people are buying favors from politicians and governments. Sometimes it might have some truth to it, sometimes maybe not. It's just their political leanings and they want to support the party of their choosing. But this is a problem. This is an absolute problem for all of us. We've got to close those holes up. We can't have the unlimited amounts of money flowing to politicians, especially from outside their party. So, again, Mr. Crosby didn't do anything wrong. Mr. Ball didn't do anything wrong. But that doesn't mean that we should just, you know, forget about it. You know, no rules were broken, so nothing to see here. No, there is something to see here. We have to close those loopholes up. We have to have the democratic reform that we have talked about ad nauseum for years. And this story, I think, just shines a bit of a brighter light on it. Okay. We spoke with Anne Nook, Alex Nook's grandmother, last week. And she said something that I thought was uh, right on point. You know, she's thankful for the distraction and the entertainment and enjoyment provided by whatever it is that you uh, go to. For us, it was the Stanley Cup. So whether it be music or reading or physical activity or whatever it is that you use to take your mind off some of the day-to-day -day issues and a lot of the doom and the gloom and the worry and anxiety, right? So she was right on point there. This past weekend was extremely heavy and overwhelming on social media. I didn't delve into it. I just couldn't do it. Didn't want to. A lot of it comes from the story from, yes, the United States of America. We all know that it's not Canada, but their Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, and everyone knows what that law is. You know, it's a constitutional protection for women's right to choose. So, 
It doesn't mean that abortions are impossible in the United States. It's left up to the states. But some 13 states have trigger laws where immediately there was a significant reduction in access to an abortion. So the thought that, you know, well, that's the U.S. Why are we doing that? Why are we talking about something that's not our country? To pretend that we don't have the financial and economical and societal and political discourse overlap between the two countries is really disingenuous and pretty dishonest because there are a lot of similarities. So when it happens there, inevitably, conversations will be entertained here. We don't have a codified in law access to an abortion, reproductive services. So even if we took that stance and that take, you know, to pretend that we can't have discussions about what's happening outside our own borders really doesn't do us and or our politicians any justice, leading to understanding who they are, where they are, where they stand on these types of issues. So, yes, it's in the United States, but there's current elected members of parliament that are opposed to abortions. You know, or some people might call it forced, uh, forced uh, delivery, forced birth. It's a tumultuous discussion, to say the very least. Then you go on to hear some of the arguments on either side. And debate is welcome, and we can talk about it on this program. You know, the concept of, well, just don't have sex. Ugh, really? You're not really making much of a point. You might think you are, but you're not. In places where sexual education focuses in on abstinence, every time the rates of teen pregnancy are up above other places that have a more robust, comprehensive, honest look at sexual education. And also to go on to say that, you know, you will hear the liberals lap this up and they will use it to condemn their conservative counterparts. That might be part of their political game, but we don't have to play that game. What we can do is just have a discussion. The thought that, well, the liberals will just do this and talk about that because it deflects from their shortcomings. It deflects from some of their so-called scandals. It deflects from the RCMP issue and the Nova Scotia mass shooting. It deflects from inflation and the price of gas. We don't need that to be the case. We can all discuss and consider multiple issues concurrently. We can. Whatever you want to talk about, we can talk about a thousand things today. So the thought that it's just in the United States we don't need to worry is quite silly. The fact that it's only a deflection, just don't let them deflect. Just don't allow our politicians, one party or another, regardless of what we're talking about, to use this as a deflection. Because we can consider and discuss and talk about a multitude of issues in the same conversation, on the same show, on the same day. So there's a lot to this. And you know, someone said, I want to know where my MHAs and my members of parliament stand. Just to be pushed back, who cares what they think? It's not a, um, it's not a Canadian issue. Don't we want to know exactly where our politicians stand on all the issues, including reproductive rights, including the women's ability and the right to choose? Why wouldn't we want to know that? The same reason we want to know where they stand on matters of the economy and social issues. So I really don't understand some of this pushback. We don't need to talk about it because it's not here. We don't have a legal protection. It's not criminalized in this country. But maybe we could just have a conversation about whether the country is going to go down the road to formally codify into law. So let's, if you want to have that conversation, as much as I stayed out of it over the weekend because I just didn't have the patience for it, but it's an important part of social and political discourse, as it should be. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's get a tune going before we come back and speak with you. Today in 1981, reaching number one at the top of the charts, Kim Carnes.
Betty Davis eyes. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. For the longest while, one of the most confusing things inside the fishery, which is a confusing industry to say the least, has been some of the rules from Transport Canada regarding the vessel length. We don't even have a level playing field across the board in Atlantic Canada. Things are going to change. Join us on line number one. It's a Liberal Member of Parliament for Avalon. That's Ken McDonald. I get the right clicker here this morning. Uh, good morning, Ken. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about yourself? Good. And like every other Newfoundlander this morning, excited and uh, grateful to uh, Alex Newhook. I'm getting the chance to play in the NHL, but to get his name etched on Lord Stanley's mug is absolutely fantastic. Remarkable. Uh, we're all thrilled for him. Of course we are. Even the casual hockey fan, I'm sure, is quite proud this morning. All right, Ken, so th- this is overdue type of news because the instability given to some of the vessels that were engineered and uh, the architecture behind them was about, you know, buoyancy and stability. And people have been forced to cut bits off their boat to accommodate Transport Canada. What are the changes? The changes are, and, and as you know, Patty, in the rest of Atlantic Canada right now or in the past while, uh, have been able to go to what's known as the 4911 in a size for inshore fishery. Uh, here in Newfoundland, Labrador, of course, we were held back at the 3911. And back in, to give some history to it, back in 2018, uh, there was a report tabled in the House of Commons, uh, a study of vessel length, recommending that changes be made to keep everything kind of equal in Atlantic Canada, at least. And I've been pushing this. I I put forward that study uh, for the Fisheries Committee to do way back in 2018. Uh, I heard from fishers I've, I hear from fishers every week talking about oh I got a boat I got a chance of buying a boat now that's 42 feet long and DFO won't let me use it unless I cut off the bow which is absolutely ridiculous I've seen pictures of boats cut off and it's like a wall trying to go through the water boats were never designed to do that so the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans uh, the Honourable Joyce Murray it has now made a decision that starting in early 2023 for the fishing season, the vessel length in Newfoundland for inshore fishers will be increased to 49.11 to be in line with the rest of Atlantic Canada. At one point, even prior to 2007, it was 34.11. So the exactly. reasons why it was so different across the board in Atlantic Canada has never been explained to me, nor has the whole concept of having to chop off a few feet to accommodate, given the fact that, you know, some arguments about competitive fisheries and stuff, nah, come on. The individual quotas and the size of the hulls is really all that counts. Supposing you were fishing in a 54-footer when 49.11 was the requirement. So this is welcomed news, to be sure. Well, from my point, or from my perspective, I should say, it'll keep fishers safer. Betty, every year we have incidents on the water when somebody leaves the wharf, and of course we've heard the stories, we've heard the news year after year. There's a certain number of people that for some reason get in trouble on the water and maybe don't return to the wharf. Absolutely. This will allow them to have a better chance to be safe around the water. And I've said, and I've had colleagues say it as well, that like DFO's responsibility in the fishery should be to manage the stock. And as you said uh, just now about regardless of what size boat you use, you know what your quota is. I actually had a regional director general say to me when we did the study that if you give fishers a bigger boat, they want a bigger quota. And my response was... But you control the quota. 
you tell people what their quota is. If their quota goes up, you let them know it goes up. If it goes down, you let them know it goes down. If somebody, just for the sake of asking, says, well, I should have more quota because I got a bigger boat, you can say no. You say no to other things. And that's the excuse they gave. But finally, finally, we got, we, we got a minister of fisheries who took it seriously and gave the direction to DFO locally here in Newfoundland to make this happen. Uh, I, I think it's uh, long overdue, but it's good news that it is happening. And you make mention of safety, and of course, that would be the primary concern when we talk about the stability and the center of gravity in these boats. Uh, sticking with safety. You know, one of the stories, we just had a Transport Safety Board review of the Island Lady that sank off a Labrador coast and two young men from Mary's Harbor lost. Yeah. So we don't even have a fast res- rescue craft in Labrador. The absence of the required search and rescue apparatus and infrastructure in Labrador is ridiculous. What is your government going to do about that? Because if we're talking about safety, safety starts also with those services. It do. And I do know that my colleagues, and especially Van Jones, the member for Labrador, is pushing hard. And I certainly support her, and I know the rest of Newfoundland MPs do, to have a fast rescue facility in Labrador, dedicated to Labrador and dedicated to the people in Labrador who are out on the water. And it's not just fishers, it's, it's recreational boaters uh, are out there as well. And in the summertime, of course, there's many people out enjoying a day on the bay, regardless if they're out uh, taking part in the food fishery or whether they're just out for a, a leisurely sail around the bay. So, uh, you know, it's got to be done. You can't leave Labrador to its own demise when it comes to safety. By the time somebody gets there and, you know, it might be somebody, the fast rescue boat maybe in St. Anthony, that's still not close enough to get there in time to save lives. And, you know, whether or not we should start mandating emergency beacons is another thing. And I know that even the father of one of those boys lost, he's at, with the Labrador Shrimp Company, he put him in all his vessels. You know, it comes with a cost, but there's nothing as costly as losing a life. Uh, can a couple of things on the federal front, and, you know, the, the inflationary pressures and cost of living has been extremely difficult for Canadians. I don't know if there's going to be a, a need or an opportunity for the, for the federal government to go back to the well or back to the drawing board. I don't think we saw anything new in the $8.9 billion announcement from Deputy Prime Minister Freeland when she spoke to the Empire Club. But there are always a few things that uh, will catch the listening public's uh, catch their ear. What do you know about the story regarding the Prime Minister's office allegedly influencing or getting involved in the RCMP investigation of the mass shooting in Nova Scotia? Wanting to have the list of the number of the kinds of weapons used before their gun ban bill was brought forward. What do you know about it? I, I don't know anything about the conversation that took place or whether there was a conversation or not between the Prime Minister and the Public Safety Minister uh, with regards to the investigation that went on after that mass shooting. But, Teddy, we have to control guns. Uh, guns are designed for one thing. They're hunting and probably target shooting or whatever you want to call it or sports shooting. But we have to limit the amount of guns that people have. Uh, you know, nobody needs an automatic rifle for firing that can fire nine or ten shots in a matter of seconds. 
and a handgun. Why does anybody need a handgun? It's only probably used at a uh, like at the rod and gun club or somewhere like that. I, you know, other than that, they're in the wrong hands. Sure, uh, but you know, gun control and types of weapons and those types of things is one debate. The issue here, though, is the allegations that the Prime Minister's office needled in on an RCMP active investigation and wanted information for their own political purposes. So you say you don't know anything about it, but who investigates this? This is where it gets complicated. You know, the federal government can't investigate it. They're part of it. They're part of the allegations. The RCMP can't do it either because they're part of the allegations. If you had George Rothers to come down to the brass tacks, exactly what happened, who investigates this? And, and, and I don't know if it's uh, the Public Safety Committee of Parliament maybe could investigate us and call witnesses. Uh, I don't know who else, because like you say, you can't investigate yourself because right away you're, it's tarnished. There's going to be one way, lean one way or the other when the investigation is completed. So maybe it's a parliamentary committee, public safety committee investigates it, or a, a, a judge and a group of people who are appointed to look into it, look into it. But I do agree, we have to get to the bottom of this. We have to know exactly what went on. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Ken. Uh, it's welcome news regarding the vessel length uh, restrictions that have now been lifted to put us on a level playing field with the rest of Atlantic Canada, at least. That's good news. Appreciate the time this morning. Not a problem. I appreciate the opportunity, Patty. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. That's Ken McDonald. He's the Liberal MP for Avalon. Uh, let's see here. We're on Twitter. We're BFC Mopal Line. The, Nathan rightfully points out that, so the cop is coming back to the province for the third time. And I know I focus on this a lot, but I love it. You know, but the first time where it makes its initial visit to the capital city. I know that Danny Cleary brought it to town and Michael Ryder brought it to town as well. But the first time that someone from town wanted, of course, Cleary from uh, the Harbour Grace area, from... Riverhead South, is that his? Yeah, Riverhead South. Of course, Michael Ryder from Bonavista. Let's take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Well, I mentioned off the top that the boys under 15s and 16s both won gold at the most recent Atlantic, so I was wondering how the girls fared. The under 15 girls won the bronze medal. The under 16s finished fourth in their division, so thanks to Stephen for that info. Let's go. Line number one. Colin, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Good, thanks. I want to talk about the uh, situation in the Ukraine. It's a uh, Continuing to be uh, devastated by relentless pounding by Russia, it has uh, tons and tons of wheat and other uh, crops that cannot get to market because of blockades, uh, primarily along the uh, by, uh, Ukraine's coastal waters. And uh, I think a lot of uh, world aid food uh, world aid food uh, food programs are at risk. Um, that are carried out by organizations such as the United Nations. It's imperative that this food gets to uh, gets to market and gets to countries that need it, right? And it likely won't, uh, for the obvious reasons. I mean, you know, people will make questions about, you know, charity begins at home and we have so many problems. The country has pledged, I think it was last week, an additional $250 million on top of the $200 million initially pledged for the food support programs. So I'll just put that in there for context. Yeah, it's uh, it's good that we're we're stepping up too, uh, but uh, you know the, the Russia and its uh, continued aggression against Ukraine uh, needs to be called out by all democratic countries. 
And I, I, I note that, uh, for example, that uh, India was invited to uh, the recent G7 meeting in Germany held over the weekend. But uh, India has uh, steadfastly refused to call out Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And, and uh, India is the world's largest democracy by population. You mm-hmm. know? The G7 were really quite uh, united uh, and firm on their commitments here. You know, I think they say something along the lines of uh, military, humanitarian, diplomatic support, stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. Whatever that really means, I'm not particularly sure. Uh, lots of distinct references to no immunity, no impunity, pardon me, for atrocities, war crimes, and otherwise. So there's... They're they're talking pretty big games here. I know the U- the Ukraine defense was really pleading for some additional air support. We don't know what it's going to look like, but the G7 have been very firm and united in their stance. Yeah, what happens, um, you know, if this drags on, this war uh, that Russia has started with Ukraine? It drags on, and uh, Russia decides uh, not to uh, try to take the whole country, but decides to take, say, the southern part of Ukraine, the port, the uh, coastal cities, um, and say the eastern part, the Donbass region, some key cities there, and, and consolidates its uh, its gains. What happens then? What does what kind of message if we don't step up and help Ukraine to totally defeat Russia and push Russia back across its border, back into on the other side of the Ukraine border, back into its uh, its own land? What well, kind of it, it, will that send? The, well, what it will do in essence was will be whatever's choked off now will be choked off forever. Absolutely. And uh, we'll be condoning Putin and his aggression. And, uh, you know, I listened to Boris Johnson yesterday on an interview uh, on CNN with Jake Tapper from uh, from the G7 in Germany. And uh, one of the things that he pointed out, and I don't agree with him on very much, but I do on this point, is that um, the West... Uh, um, runs the danger of uh, getting into a into a fatigue paraphrasing him now uh with with ukraine you know the longer this drags on that uh this will just blend into the background and will sort of become uh normalized by by the conflict there and we won't give it the full attention that it deserves you know well it uh, has happened with many of the conflicts over the last number of decades i mean do people pay much attention to the ongoing military operations in afghanistan probably not you no. know and the impact there didn't hit us where it hurts and you know not to be cold or callous but the reality here is that we've had a big impact on a variety of things U- ukraine and russia are the breadbasket of europe or Ukraine, pardon me, is the breadbasket of Europe. The amount of grains not hitting the market and consequently in people's bellies is extraordinary. And what that complication has meant is obvious. The issue of 4 million million barrels of oil per day that Russia uh, distributes around various parts of the world, not here, thankfully. But these sort of backlogs and supply chain issues, when they just becomes cyclical, not cyclical, like we might see with the ups and downs and inflation and job numbers and stuff. If this becomes the new reality, then, yes, people can blame Justin Trudeau or Joe Biden or Macron or Boris Johnson all they like about inflation, when, in fact, you know, it's obviously much more complicated than that, then we will not see an end in sight, whereas, you know, this conflict comes to some sort of resolution. And what that looks like, Colin, I have no earthly idea, begins the road back to normalcy and a bit more economic stability. Yeah, I agree with you, and I think uh, you know if Russia is not completely defeated and pushed back across its border, back into uh, Russia proper, 
Uh, it's going to be devastating for Ukraine. And it's going to send a message to the rest of the international community and uh, like-minded uh, folks like Putin, that uh, especially China. China's watching this. They got skinned in this game. Uh, they're hitching the wagon to the Russians. And uh, next up will be Taiwan. China's taking a very good look at uh, NATO and the United States and, and other countries, non-NATO countries, but democratic countries like Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and seeing how we all react collectively and individually to Ukraine. And this is the uh, the acid test, I think, for China. And, for example, its ambitions in Taiwan and how it deals with Hong Kong, for example, you know. So we have a lot. We have a lot at stake here. It's not just what happens in Ukraine, right? No, of course not. Uh, and you know, curiously, well, I don't know if it's curious or not. Russia defaulted on its foreign debt for the first time in over a hundred years. Yeah, I saw that. Is that going to become some kind of contagion? Is that going to spread into the international market now? Are we going to have another like two thousand eight meltdown? I don't know. I threw it out there because I think that's where the worry would lie. I uh, appreciate the time, Sworn Colin. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, yeah, and again, I'll admit, I don't have an everyday being bombarded with the visuals and the stories and the atrocities in Ukraine. It's just really, truly remarkable. Let's get another one before we go to the break. Uh, line number two, Sarah, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, talk about uh, Friday evening there, I uh, went to got to pick up my phone to phone uh, a friend of mine and... Uh, uh, I don't know what happened anyway. And I ended up uh, answering uh, a call. Some people call some crank calls, but it's gone beyond that. Uh, someone, uh, anyway, decided to tell me about uh, I had a letter come from uh, from my bank, which I did. I had a new, uh, uh, those Costco guys come from the, the ones that uh, CIBC. Okay. So anyways, uh started telling me my name and uh uh, he, you know, my birth date and all this stuff, and and says that I had a letter come, and so I did. So I said, uh, he, he, but he wanted to know. He said to somebody to a Walmart store uh, using my credit card. I said, no, they're not, because I said they're not even activated. I only had to come like last week, and uh, he wanted me to give him the number, the number off of the cards. Well, so naturally, I wasn't going to do that. So anyway, after a while, I had to hang up on him. But anyway, he, uh, I guess where I answered, he got relentless. The wife, uh, we were out by the house here just uh, doing some work around, and uh, ended up, anyway, the wife came with the calls after. He phoned there nine times to try to get his, and the answering machine used to cut in. And, uh, and anyway, on the end of it, the wife answered and uh, said, you know, like, why are you still calling back? Like, where... We're not going to get involved in this. And uh, he used to come up, user, and the number, a 1-800 number. And uh, anyway, when the wife told him that, you know, this number is coming up on our phone and everything, then that's when he hung up and never called back. Look, they're, they're just relentless. They really, truly are. And they call my house. One of the few calls we ever get on the landline is someone who's trying to scam us. There is never, ever, ever a reason to give out your banking information to a phone, someone who phones the house. Never. Oh, your social no. insurance number, your credit card info, any banking information, it's simply never a good idea to give out any of that. Just hang up. Don't even put yourself through 
the the frustration of having to deal with someone on the other end of the line who's obviously just trying to uh, separate you from your hard-earned money. Yes, uh, the the puzzling part though is how he uh, knew I had this uh, letter from from the bank, and I did have a new kayak. This that was the puzzling part. I don't know if they know this stuff has been sent out or 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 what you know. That's good. that's a fair question. I wouldn't know the answer to that, Sarah. Maybe they just got so-called lucky. Yes, I, that's what I think. The same thing, hey. Eh? You know, maybe that they, they know this stuff has has been sent out all the time, and they just, like you said, they just got lucky. Yeah, uh, Patty. I was going to mention one more thing there. Now uh, you were talking about uh, your caller down the road there says uh, about the the boats landing the boats and everything, eh? Mm-hmm. But for years, uh, I was a fisherman all my life, and and I could never understand the 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 thirty nine eleven. You know, uh, we've had a few accidents over over the years and everything. Uh, well, number one was that land the boat, and some of the fisheries that they took part in, like dragging, uh, with scallop dragging, or uh, even at the crab. You know, like uh, smaller boats would have those booms on them. Pulling a boy crab pots or or thirty nine eleven we'll say going out over twenty miles uh, in, even into the big athletes you know the the uh, had a bigger license and going out eighty and ninety mile and and no uh, no form of safety or anything on those boats you know uh, if they never even had a fire extinguisher or a pump aboard it didn't matter they just was allowed to go you know it was no uh, not, not like the the forty five footers or or anything over forty feet at the over under government inspection. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a piece oh. of information, Sarah. Back to the original point for your call is uh, the Costco database apparently has been hacked. Oh, so, so that's how they knew uh, your card was sent out. Oh well, there you go. Well, yeah. the <laughs> so as, I guess everyone should be forewarned there. So just yep. don't give out the info no matter what. Hang up and uh, just yes. let them try the next person. Hopefully that person does the same thing you did and not, not get fooled by it. But good points on the on the vessel length stuff. The argument opposed to it has just been ridiculous, nonsensical the entire time. You know, uh, if you have a bigger boat, you'll want a bigger quota. I mean, come on. Does anyone really think that that's a, le- a legitimate piece of pushback when we're talking about yes, safety? Yes, I, 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 I never uh, agreed with that anyway. Well, I, I know back in the years ago when the, before the moratorium started and after that there was people who who did get bigger boats and they were pushing that the union, uh, uh, they were higher ups on the union and everything, and they were trying to push that. But like you just said then, no is no. You know what I mean? The government, uh, they can say no and other things, so, you know, all they have to do is say no, and you're not, that's not going to happen. But uh, nevertheless, uh, those uh, poor guys down the Labrador and, and up in the other bay up there, uh, uh, you take four or five men on a boat, and, and I know, for, you take first when, the, when they started the crab in the smaller boat, uh, all kinds of speed boats, uh, well, I guess there's still a scattered one now, going out with a, with a crab hauler on a boom hanging out over the side of a boat. You could, uh, if it get up in the bottom, capsize. And, and, and people did have uh, run into a lot of trouble. I know around there they did. Uh, but once they seen the danger into it, just like that, they uh, got clear of those boats. And if they want to stay in it, they got a bigger boat and a better boat. But the only thing about it, when the 3911, getting back to it again, there's, there's a lot of them out there now. 
uh, well, there's only the fishermen themselves uh, know if if they got a proper pump aboard, or it's like you know, there's no government inspection or no nothing on those boats. And I I definitely think that uh, there should be something uh, done about it. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me, sir. I really appreciate making time for the show this morning. Okay, thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Oh, before we do, so this is uh, more information coming from my Twitter feed. So he says, it's not the Stanley Cup, but good showing for the Marine Advanced Technology Education Remote Operating Vehicle. So the team from uh, the Marine Institute, am I reading this properly? Uh, at the World Championships, but I don't know it was Memorial's, uh, Memorial University's team, Eastern Edge Robotics. So let's see. Uh, third place overall in the Explorer class for the Eastern Edge Robotics team. Fantastic stuff. And top engineering presentation also in the Explorer class. That award goes to, once again, the Eastern Edge Robotics team from Mun. Terrific. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Roz, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. And uh, I'm, I'm calling about how angry people get uh, so, so easy because I, I lost it last night myself. We were just sitting around talking about how bad the nuns treated us. Because I had a sister, uh, Santa gave myself and my sister a doll for Christmas, and she was questioned on, on uh, how come we couldn't pay. It used to be called oil fees back then. We couldn't pay our oil fees, but Santa was managed to give us a doll. And she was embarrassed. She was put up in front of the class, and d- this was done to her, right? And, and last night, we were just sitting around having a conversation, and I got that angry talking about it. I lost it with my friends. You know, oh, I got okay. angry with my friends over nothing. And um, it, it's happening everywhere. Everyone are losing it over bull, right? I won't say the second word. Sure, I know what you're saying. Uh, you know, there's. I think people really do have... Well, just my own experience. A shorter fuse than they did in years past. And I think the pandemic is a pressure has been very real, regardless of your thoughts on it, and whether it be restrictions or masks or vaccines or the economy or your job or your family. It's just been a really strained period of time. And so I've noticed a couple of people who were just so happy-go-lucky and jovial now are pretty much got the uh, uh, their cross all the time. You know, and look, I mean, sitting in this chair, I deal with a lot of people who have, you know, snapped off pretty quick, and they come at you like guns blaze, and sometimes on issues where you're not so sure what the big deal might be. But, yeah, I think that's probably more common than not, Roz, unfortunately. Yes, and and, and the same when, when they're talking about the employees for the government, you know. Yes, they are getting holidays, and but they fought for all of that. They gave up their gave up pay to get those holidays. And mm, that, I'm not know? sure about that, but and, and well, Patty, in my experience, okay. with uh, people, they did. They had to walk the street, just like we had. We had to walk the street to get maternity leave. We had to walk, you know. And and women were always paid less than men. And even though you were doing, like I said, I was working side by side with a guy, and and I was putting off more production than him, and I was getting a dollar less. So I questioned it, where other people wouldn't question it. And I had to go in and fight for that by myself. I didn't have anybody to, to back me up. And, uh, you know, that, that's when the unions start coming in to help you. You know, like I said, it's not everything is not perfect about unions, 
But I'm telling you, is a lot of people be living a lot poorer if there wasn't a union out there. Now, everyone in the government, I mean, politicians get all the holidays. Everyone gets the holidays. <laughs> yeah, they get to set their own holiday schedule pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate this. Anything else for us before I go to the news? No, no, that's it, Patty. It's just that, I, you know, I couldn't believe that I lost it over a bull. And, um, you know, like I said, the pandemic has a lot to do with it, I think, that people are so angry they don't want to see other people getting ahead. Yeah, maybe that's been a feature of life uh, for quite a long time, but the the low patience threshold, I think, has gotten some people in the last number of years. Uh, Thank you for your time this morning, Ross. Take good care of yourself. And you too. All right, bye-bye. So Ross uh, mentioned where to pay. So there's a story out there now regarding the former finance director at the Oil Co., the Oil and Gas Corporation, splintered away from Nalcor, about the inequity in the rate of pay that she was afforded. So she was the only female uh, senior officer in the company, and she was making less than her counterparts. The company acknowledged it, said they were going to deal with the pay inequity, promise to adjust the salary, and issue a a retroactive payment to this lady, her name is uh, Janine Fitzgerald, but they didn't do it. And now Ms. Fitzgerald is suing them. So pay equity legislation, you know, people will say, well, it's because more females work in lower-paying jobs. No one gets paid less if they're doing the same job. Well, Janine Fitzgerald says that she was in that exact circumstance, and the corporation actually acknowledged it. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Don's in the queue to talk about retire recycling. Coming to CBS this November. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Don, you're on the air. Good day, sir. Good day to you. Good. I was going to buy the Liberal government a dictionary. First, I'm not going to talk about tires. I'm talking about dictionary first. It comes out with protocol. It comes out with uh, communication. It comes out with these other words, and we don't even follow them. Now, I understand sometimes what Donald Trump says about fake news. One day you report, it's not your fault. You only report new idiots. You understand that? Not really, Don. What are we talking about? Okay, we're talking about uh, did uh, Dr. E. Paul pull a call with his $250 plate dinner? Yes or no? Did he pull his own protocol? No. No, he didn't. That's right. Then so. when he said he's going to have these collaborative clinics staff with all new doctors, that's false. Because he didn't. He, he took doctors from any other places in the rural Newfoundland. So, that's false. Where in rural Newfoundland was a doctor taken to come to a clinic in St. John's? Two yeah. of them are from Steamville. I know that for a fact. One from Steamville? Uh, that was a question. I, didn't, I did not know the answer. Okay. Here's the, if you had an investigative reporter, they would have went to the collaborative care clinic and found the doctor's name. And knew where he came from. I know where he went to. Two of them left there and went to the um, Dr. Aegis clinics. So yeah. you're suggesting we should look at the roster of healthcare professionals at the clinics and determine what where they I'm came from? What I'm suggesting is you should have a little more investigating reporting here. 
Dr. Hagee said that Ram Dutt is going in the collaborative clinics. Well, we know that. There's one from Mount Pearl, for instance, uh, is working in one of these new clinics and was unable to take, I believe it's a lady, her entire patient roster. So we've talked about that on this program, so I'm not sure what else to say. Well, I know what to say because uh, it's misinformation. But they, that's why I say I want to send them. This. Now, let's go to the tires. Okay. Okay, during our changing thought now, recycling tires again in Newfoundland, Labrador? It's happening. It's going to happen starting November. Yeah, and guess what? What? Did they research what happened to the last tire recycling plant we had here? Why? What about it? Because I worked there. Okay, what about it? I know all the ins and outs. What was, there was no government oversight. We, We did have a contract with a company in Nova Scotia. When they would send the tires over there, and then one morning I goes in and I was running this plant. I goes in and the lights are cut off. I walked right across the street, right in power. I said, "What's going on here? My plant shut down because you didn't pay the bill." <laughs> well, it wasn't up to me to pay the bill. I was only running, and you know what? Them tires had to be cleaned up. <clears throat> it was a big story. Them tires never went to Quebec. They're here in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And I can prove that. Well, some are, but absolutely some have been sent to the, to Quebec. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Right, but how come there's still some here? Well, I think they ship them out quarterly, if I remember correctly, upwards of 500,000 tons. Don, look, you know, you talk about misinformation and stuff, and to tell me that they didn't send tires to Quebec is simply factually not true. Well, first of all, did you know we had a contract with a company in Nova Scotia that we're going to send tires to, and when I call that company, now just a minute, when I call that company in Nova Scotia, they said, here's the problem. We wanted your tires, we wanted your crumb, but they showed up when we didn't want them. They weren't supposed to be delivered on the date they were delivered. Now, I know this. Is it not a better idea to do that business here in this province versus pay to ship tires to another province? I know, but look, they trained us, 13 people, they trained us to apply for this job, took us off AES, our social service. They trained us, the government did. When to get this job? Got the job, and I came, I I met with even a member of the Chinese. I met with the MMSP. Now, the government can cover up all this they want, but when I see what's going on, you're telling me that it's better for them to send. And never went to Quebec. So, do you have your facts straight, or do you, Don? Yes, I do. Is the government giving you facts? That's what you're reporting. No, we got the information from the company, because it's not the government that's going to be recycling the tires. Well, so, now, so, see what what company you get that information from? Enviro Tire Recycling. No, C and D, uh, C and D Recycling, or Halifax C and D Recycling is a company. Yeah, I know. I'm not talking about them. That's the new ones coming in. That's the ones who are coming. Yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about the old ones was there. I, I'm not sure, nor do I know what you want me to do or say about that. But well, the, what I want you to do is, is get your investigators on the go here and happen, what happened to we have a beautiful plant here in Stephenville, Newfoundland, that was automatically shut down, gone. 
and it was working better. We had tail for the crop. So that's all I'm asking for you to investigate that part of the question. Um, okay. Just, just go ask the question. What happened to the one in Steve? No, what happened to that plant? I'm not sure what I get out of that, but uh, I got no problem asking. No, I know exactly what I get out of it. I was running the plant, sir. So I heard that, yeah. And when I went over the, the lighting power right across the street, about 100 feet, the light bill wasn't paid. The guy took the money and he ran. And guess what? He was related to somebody in a pretty liberal government. So when was this? Uh, let me see. I'm not sure of the date, but you can look it up yourself. Okay, Don, I'll have a look during this break. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks a lot. No, I want you to look into this. Okay, Don. To entertain the stupid thing again. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we did indeed... Am I taking it right now, Dave? Okay, let's go. Line number three, say good morning to the leadership co-chair at the Progressive Conservative Party of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Rhonda McMeekin. Good morning, Rhonda. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm very well. How about you? I'm not too bad, thanks. So you've set all the dates for the leadership contest. Eventually, the leader will be announced. I think it's on the 14th of October of 2023, which will be two years uh, before the next election, which is tentatively scheduled for October 14th, 2025. The thought that it would give your new leader a full two years, is there any worry inside the party that the Liberals may indeed call an election prior to that? And you know leaders need to get up to speed, you know, especially if it's not Mr. Brazen, for instance, who, of course, is completely up to speed as interim leader. What was the thought process about that? Because you never know when we're going to go back to the polls. No, and that's right. I mean, we, we do have fixed state legislation here, and, and we're kind of operating under good faith that, um, you know, that will be adhered to at least, you know, somewhat um, in order to give our new leader uh, or or what have you a chance to uh, to be prepared. So inside the process, talk us through, like, you know, we've always talked about in years past, card, carry, and Tory and all this. Who gets to participate? So our uh, nominations will open on May 17th of next year and close on June 16th. And then those that are accepted as uh, accredited candidates will have until August 15th to sign people up as members or supporters. So there's a a slight difference between the two, um, but basically they, they just have to go in and sign up on our website to be registered members or supporters of our party. Uh, A membership does come with a membership fee, whereas a supporter, has a little less, um, I guess, rights within the party. They can't run for elected office within the party and whatnot. Um, but they still have the right to vote uh, during that leadership process. Okay. There was a bit of confusion there years back about people signing up simply to put their support behind one candidate or another who are members of other parties, supporters of other parties. How do you manage that? Because, you know, I don't think there's a big population out there nefarious uh, thoughts. That, you know, I'm going to go uproot the PC contest. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, the, the amount of people that would actually do that are, are 
fairly small. Um, so our membership deadline to sign up is going to be August 15th, but voting won't start until October 4th. So that does give our committees time to go through that list and vet it um, to make sure that everybody who has signed up is a legitimate person and to make sure that, you know, some of those oddities aren't in there. So the list will be will be cleaned up and be vetted appropriately. And you say that uh, you're extending this up because the party is quite pleased with the leadership afforded to them by Mr. Brazel. Was it ever part of the party's constitution that, you know, like we see on the federal levels oftentimes, when you take on the interim role, you're prohibited from ro- running for the permanent role. What, what has the case been inside your party? Yeah, so we uh, adopted a new constitution a couple of years ago that does say that the interim leader is not eligible to run uh, for the permanent leadership of the party. So as the constitution is written now, that is the case. Also inside this story, and like I said off the top, there is nothing to see here insofar as rules being broken and what have you with the story regarding Mr. Crosby's $300,000 worth of donations to the party, some 40% of the entire money brought in the door. Where's the party come down on some of these campaign finance reforms? Because it's nothing, you know, Mr. Crosby had, didn't stand to gain anything. He was already a member of the party, leader of the party, but that same opportunity comes from people outside the party, whether it be corporations or individuals, where we all have an issue regarding the optics. What are the PCs think about uh, working towards that type of democratic reform? You know, I think you're absolutely right. There is no rules broken here. Mr. Crosby, uh, you know, made his decision on his own to put his own money forward. Um, I think it's also important to note that we were a party in opposition down in the polls, and we still managed to raise a significant amount of money outside of what Mr. Crosby donated. And doing all that during COVID, while we as a party decided to follow the COVID restrictions and rules and didn't host in-person fundraisers, unlike some other parties um, that were fundraising at the time. But I think, you know, now that uh, the election of 2021 is behind us and there are some um, committees happening around electoral reform. I think, you know, we have we have people that are sitting on those committees now, and I'm interested to hear what comes out of that. I think we all are, because it is quite important to say that Mr. Crosby didn't do anything wrong. But if that had to be private citizen X, then all hands would be up on arms. And I think rightfully so. I appreciate the time. Anything else you'd like to offer the listeners about the pending leadership contest or anything else this morning, Rhonda? No, absolutely not. But if anybody would like any more information or to sign up to be a member of our party, they're absolutely welcome to do so. They can go to our website, pcnl.ca, or they can send me an email at info at pcnl.ca, and I'd be happy to answer any questions for anybody at all. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thanks so much, Patty. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Ronnie McMeekin. She's the leadership co-chair for the Progressive Conservative Party. Let's take a break. When we come back, Michaela's in the queue to talk about fishing licenses. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, someone just said, why am I attacking Chess Crosby? Again, just so I can be clear here. Not doing it because there's not an attack warranted. The conversation simply begins with the fact that Mr. Crosby, he has acknowledged he didn't break any rules. He didn't do anything wrong. It's his own money. He can do whatever he sees fit with it, with making $300,000 of donations to his own party. Fine. Same thing when former Premier Ball made uh, donations in excess of $200,000 to his leadership campaign. Fine. The point that I'm making is that neither did anything wrong. They didn't break any of the rules. But... If we don't close up some of those opportunities, then when someone who's a private citizen or a private corporation makes that level of donation, that brings upon the scrutiny that it should, but we should not even allow it to happen in the first place. Anyway, let's keep going. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Andrew Fury. Premier Fury, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How's it going, man? Doing okay this morning. A bit blurry-eyed, but I'm doing fine. How are you? (laughs) Well, it's a top-shelf day out there. That's for sure. It's beautiful. 
That it is, and I imagine as a hockey fan, you took the opportunity to sit down and watch the game last night. I believe that's why you're calling. I'd like to start with offering your congratulations. Indeed. My family and I watched last night, like I'm sure many Newfoundlanders and Labradorians did, and couldn't be more proud to see Alex hoist that cup. I mean, I had the opportunity to talk to him uh, going into the Stanley Cup Finals, and he was a little nervous, a little excited, butterflies, but... Uh, to see him play just an incredible series, an incredible season when you think about it is, is just truly spectacular. And, I mean, what a what a great way to finish a rookie season. And uh, we're also incredibly proud here in Newfoundland and Labrador and can't wait in this come home year to welcome Lord Stanley back back to the Rock. Yeah, and I think there's going to be uh, two appearances of the Stanley Cup, once out to uh, Gander or Twillingate for the Kraft Hockeyville. And, of course, when Alex has an opportunity to bring it home for his one day with the Cup, I cannot wait. Uh, me either, man. It's going to be a great time. And, and I mean, this is, he. you know, every time I talk to Alex, he, he's really given credit to the province and minor hockey here. And his parents are so humble and supportive. And it's just a great story. And, of course, we all know the story of his, uh, his sister as well, who's rookie of the year in Boston College. What a great, uh, what a great family, a great sport, accomplishment. Uh, and I'm sure this is just the first of many more accolades for Alex and the whole New Hook family. And we couldn't be more proud of, as a province and coming at a great time too. The, the whole province needed to see Alex raise that cup last night, and it's just spectacular. That it is. I spoke with his grandmother last week here on the show. She talked about how lucky we are to have something to distract us from some of the other issues that are dominating the news, the war in Ukraine and the economy and COVID, whatever. So that's what I use. Uh, sports is one of my my getaways. But of course, and I'm sure he appreciates uh, your congratulations here today, but I would be remiss and I would be pummeled if we didn't move on to some issues pertaining to politics, the economy, and the like. Where I'd like to start, and this is an interesting one that hasn't gotten any attention as far as I can tell. So the 2041 panel, to understand exactly what the implications are of the upper Churchill contract expiring in 2041. Solid idea because I think people think it's the golden goose when it may not be exactly that. But there's also something that we just found out after the fact. The Churchill River Energy Analysis Team, chaired by Mr. Paddock. I hear some people say that there's a distinct conflict of interest here, given he's the partner with one of the proponents for a hydrogen project on the West Coast. Is it not a conflict? I don't see it as a conflict, and I'm sure Mr. Paddock can manage his own conflicts. Um, life is full of conflicts, Patty, it's, uh, especially when you're looking for expertise in an area that has a fairly shallow pool. So, you know, it, it's not about the conflicts. It's about how you manage the conflict, and uh, I'm, I'm sure Mr. Paddock will manage that conflict appropriately. This is just one input into the 2041. They're not making decisions. What we did there was... We took the rate mitigation team, which I think did a great job, $5.2 billion, $3.2 billion in new cash uh, to the province to prevent electricity rates from doubling. And we wanted their expertise uh, to, uh, to continue to provide uh, financial inputs uh, for uh, the 2041 committee. It's, pretty, it's, 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 it's straightforward as that. That's just one option that 20, the 2041 committee, chaired by Mr. Smith, will, will consider. And certainly, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, this is the 2041 committee gives a chance for public discourse about how this may not be the what we've all been led to believe in terms of the, the final solution to the economic woes of, of Newfoundland and Labrador. And, and this is just one chance for everybody to speak about it. And, you know, this was one of the things we found out sort of after the fact, as opposed to being included with the 2041 panel announcement initially, which brings us down the road of, you know, what all politicians and governments will uh, pledge is to be accountable and to be transparent. 
There's a bit of a standoff, it seems, between your office and the Privacy Commissioner's office, especially when it came to the Elections and L report. We don't know how that all unfolded, but when you said that the Privacy Commissioner will have a look at it and vet it for what needs to be redacted so we can all have a look at it, he said he wouldn't do it. So then the, the concept of client-solicitor privilege. Should the Privacy Commissioner be our go-to representative to adjudicate what actually constitutes client-solicitor privilege as opposed to simply applying that tag and or deeming something a cabinet document? Because Bill 29 was the unraveling of a party. You made very clear pledges about transparency. Shouldn't Mr. Harvey be able to tell us what is and is not for public view? Uh, certainly, we're, we're continuing to work with Mr. Harvey. And I think, you know, my intent and spirit, and I think Mr. Harvey recognized this, was I'd like to be as transparent. I'd like that report to go out, but it need to be it needs to be redacted. It needs to have the appropriate lens. And consulting with the privacy commissioner, granted, I may have used the wrong the wrong verbiage. The spirit was was there that we want to consult with the privacy commissioner to see how much of this we can release in a redacted form to not harm uh, individuals in the report. So the balance of disclosure and transparency with individual privacy. We're always striving to be more transparent, to be to have full disclosure, and we'll continue to work with the Privacy Commissioner on that. With respect to, uh, you know, client solicitor uh, privilege, uh, that's a that's a difficult one, uh, certainly, and uh, and it's certainly a difficult one in the Westminster system. And we'll continue to work with uh, with the Privacy Commissioner to to ensure that we strike uh, the right balance of of cabinet confidentiality and public disclosure. Um, that's that's certainly something that's important to me. It's important to government, and we want to make sure that we get it right. What has changed with the increase in the numbers of orders in council? Because, you know, it's a legislative tool, and it's absolutely available to governments provincially and federally. But there seems to be a, a realistic, pardon me, a significant increase in the numbers of orders in council, which kind of goes back to client solicitor privilege and cabinet documents and the privacy commissioner. Why is that? What's happening? Uh, I'm not sure, uh, Patty, to be perfectly honest. Uh, this is, uh, you know, I think if you kind of looked at the numbers over time uh, and accounted for, you know, the, the delay uh, with the election, the, care, the extended caretaker mode, uh, if you looked at uh, COVID, uh, then I think some of that has to play in the absolute numbers. But again, we're always uh, looking to be more transparent and more open and listening to the people of the province. I have nothing to hide and government has nothing to hide. We're all up here just trying to do our best. And if there's, uh, if there's a way that we can be more transparent and open, then we're certainly interested in hearing it and certainly interested in acting on it. Uh, what can you tell us about what went on last week? I don't know if you were personally involved with the Learning Loss Symposium because, you know, COVID has had a realistic impact on almost every facet of life. One of my concerns is the uh, opportunity for high school students to be fully prepared for post-secondary opportunities. What do you know about what went on at the symposium? And when can we hear, when do you think we can get some more information? Because there's a lot of concerned families and individuals. Yeah, no doubt. And of course, you know, I have children in uh, in high school as well. They're not transitioning to uh, the university level just yet. But I think any parent out there or any child that's gone through uh, COVID-style education has some concerns about adaptation, either to post-secondary or to the work environment. And uh, I, I was not, I did not partake in that conference myself. I know Minister Osborne has a has a report or has a uh, has some um, was partaking, and uh, we'll have some idea about how we can uh, how we can better equip uh, those who have uh, have been subject to the COVID style education system, and we'll and we'll be there to support as best we can. Uh, we want to make sure that we're supporting. Uh, these uh, adolescents, these young adults, as they come out of the high school system and either into the work stream, the college stream, or the university stream, 
And if there's anything that came from that that we can act on, we certainly will immediately. Our last one, Premier Fury. We talk about uh, democratic reforms and campaign finance reform. The story about Mr. Crosby making $300,000 of donations to his party. Didn't break any rules, didn't do anything wrong. Former Premier Ball did the exact same thing when he ran for the Liberal Party leadership. This might be a perception issue, an optics issue, or a factual rea realistic issue for folks, but this has to change. I mean, we're so far behind even the federal government, which has some real significant limits in place, can your government pledge to, do, to finally advance this down the road, to do away with what is a bit of a free-for-all here? It's the wild, wild west with campaign finance in this province. What do you, what do you say, and what should be done? Yeah, certainly. And uh, the Minister of Justice and Attorney General, Mr. Hogan, and I have chatted about this. Uh, certainly you've seen that, uh, in, whether it was a leadership campaign, I put, my, I put own, my own limits on it, even though there wasn't. And I think that we should have limits that reflect the current state of democracy across the country. No question. Um, so we're, uh, there is an electoral uh, reform uh, committee, uh, Minister Hogan, uh, and uh, will continue to uh, pursue options of uh, campaign financing reform and other democratic reforms uh, if required. But uh, I, we are behind and we need to catch up, and it's uh, something that we'll endeavor to pursue. Appreciate your time this morning, Premier. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. So, Premier of Newfoundland Labrador. Is it the 14th Premier, Andrew Fury? Anyway, let's take a break. You want to pick up on anything you heard there or bring up a topic of your choosing, you can do it after this. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Uh, Patty, uh, uh, I haven't called in a long time, and uh, uh, but it's good to hear from you. And uh, it's a nice day in Labrador. You Glad know, to hear it. Very warm weather, and, uh, and looking forward to this week. But I was very disturbed on Friday, the twenty fourth of June. My grandson Owen, who's three years old, had a had a dental had a dental uh, appointment to get his uh, eight silver caps put on and a nerve treatment. And, and his appointments was at the uh, Janeway uh, Pediatric Dentist Specialist uh, uh, Group uh, in, in, uh, in St. John's. Uh, he, he traveled with his parents, uh, and they, uh, they were looking forward to getting him, you know, get proper Medicare for his teeth to get fixed. And, and uh, you know, uh, but that, the main reason why... Uh, they took him out to us to get his uh, teeth fixed and uh, you know, uh, and looking forward to the trip. But it turned out that my grandson uh, was traumatized and very scared after that procedure, uh, which was supposed to be, you know, a normal procedure. And, uh, you know, but it was, it was during that process in which uh, my, my, da my daughter was very upset, scared, Crying and uh, and saying, "Dad, they they hurt him." And and uh, when she told me that, she she gave me the details of what, what was going on. And and it looked like to me, it's, you know, as a parent, and 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 my grandson was really hurt. So what happened at the dentist? Well, what they did was that they. Uh, they, uh, they, they. Uh, well, first of all, they, he had he had a fast for uh, 
his appointment, which was at two thirty p.m. He's uh, he's he fasted till eight that morning, eight a.m. that morning, and he had an appointment at two thirty in the afternoon. So he was, that's about uh, you know, six and a half hours. But when he got there, he, he's uh, they did an X-ray on him, and then they did a procedure on him at around uh, ten minutes to four Newfoundland time. Now this is about eight hours of uh, non-eating, and you know children tend to be uh, tend to eat, uh, eat and want to be uh, you know want want to eat something at least, but but still, you know, there, that pro- that process took uh, took me to the uh, took me to the uh, uh, dentist, and then he got his uh, he was supposed to get eight silver caps and a nerve treatment, but it turned out that he got four caps. But it was during that situation that, you know, they they uh, g- they put a gas mask on him on his nose, and uh, you know to relax him. Was, uh, I think it's called a laughing gas or something. But but uh, that was supposed to relax him, and uh, and also they uh, 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 gave him some needles around his gums so they could freeze his gums, and he wouldn't feel the procedure. But it was during that process, the uh, my grandson was screaming and shouting. And his and his uh, and his gum was bleeding from the drilling, and that when when his mother was standing right by by him on the side, holding his hand, uh, he was screaming. She was screaming and she was crying, telling the doctor, the, the dentist, to stop, but the dentist wouldn't stop. Keep uh, keep on keep kept on going. You know, not not. Uh, not listening to the child in pain and not, not uh, you know, as as a, as a as a professional dentist, professional person, you would you see somebody in pain, you stop. So, Paul, do you think that the dentist was purposefully trying to do something to hurt or make your child, uh, your grandson upset? Because so many kids like mine included, the first few trips to the dentist are traumatic to say the very least, especially when you're getting a big amount of work done like this poor little boy was. So do you think it was just, you know... I mean, I wasn't there. I so said, I'm not going to diminish or uh, any of this because I get upset when my children get upset too, even at their age yeah. in their 20s. So yeah. do you think the doctor purposefully did anything wrong or was just trying to get the job done and the child was worried, afraid, and maybe in yeah. some pain? Because having any work done in your teeth can be very painful regardless of how old you are. Yeah. And I, don't, I, would, say I, can, I, I would say that this is a Friday afternoon now, Patty, and Friday afternoon you know, is the last day of work, really. But then when you're coming from, you know, Labrador and then you're traveling to the island to get the Medicare and, uh, and dental, dental care, you, you don't anticipate to be put on the, uh, you know, Friday afternoon. And what it happened on Friday afternoon and, and the, from what my, my, daughter, my daughter said was they were, they were rushing. They were rushing to get this procedure done. Uh, because everybody was looking at their watches, even the assistant, and saying that you know uh, there's a very short time. So I'm I'm just I'm just so I'm I'm very upset about it, and very shocked, and and I I can't believe that they would they would rush a procedure, scared the hell out of ch- a child or anybody's child. They would be upset. 
you know, my my daughter was crying. She was very upset, and she was saying they hurt, they hurt, they hurt your grandson. And Dad, what do I do? I'm so scared. My my grandson woke up around seven o'clock that evening. He said, "No, no, stop, stop," like that. And you know, he was traumatized. He just woke up from that, from uh, from uh, you know. He was very tired after the procedure, and he went to he went to sleep around six. Woke up at seven. He was screaming from what just happened. And I'm just saying, I'm just saying to myself, a three-year-old to travel to get help to get the you know to get the Medicare that he was supposed to get. It, it ended up traumatizing him. He's now very afraid of a dentist. Very afraid of a doctor. Anybody in a gown like that, you know, he, he doesn't want to be in, in that area anymore. That's what he that's what he said to mom. No no more doctor, please, no more dentist, please, like that. So are you going to attempt to do anything about it? Well, I'm I'm reaching out I'm reaching out to people out there in the province, in Labrador. Have they ever experienced that kind of, you know, experience before with their children or their or their grandchildren? And I'm saying that the, the, the uh, we shouldn't have to take children outside to get their Medicare done. It should be done in Labrador. It should be, you know, close so that we wouldn't have to travel so far. And uh, on a Friday afternoon to get an appointment and then try to rush this procedure, it hurt it hurt my grandson, it hurt my daughter, it hurt my it hurt the you know the from what I from what I see there the, you you traumatize you traumatize a little boy who's three years old who'll never again look at the dentist normally the way no, normal kids should be getting their proper care and that's what I was very upset about. Well, I'm sorry that it happened, and I hope that he does recover from this. Uh, if anything comes of it, Paul, you can give us a call again. And let us know what happened. Yes, thank you very much, Patty. But I'm I'm I'm, I'm glad that you uh, let me share this on online, so I could uh, you know reach out to people and uh, let them know that you know what happened shouldn't have happened, and it should never happen when you're dealing with professional people. You expect them to treat your your uh, your child well, your grandchildren well, and look after them. Not scared of not scared them to death. Thanks for this, Paul. Thank you very much. Take good care. Bye-bye. Okay. All right, let's go and take a break. When we come back, tons of time left to speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Matthew, you're on the air. Yes, sir. Um, I'm, uh, I guess, upset, and uh, I don't know what you would call it, uh, our government. And uh, the, I'm not against the Ukrainians or any refugees coming to Canada, because I think if I was in their situation, or we was, we'd uh, flee from the country too. But uh, they give them uh, free rent, a visa card, and help some out. And I'm an old-age pensioner. My wife don't get one cent in the world, and I can't get any help at all. So I wonder what's going on with our government, with the health care and everything else. Uh, why aren't we treated like they're treated? Where well, they're, we? they're actually not getting that type of support, uh, Matthew. So with the way they changed the process of fast-tracking, to basically do the paperwork when you arrive as opposed to the long time it takes to do re refugee applications and otherwise, 
So they actually, because of the way that it was all handled and the time which with, with which they were able to make their way to the province, they don't get that type of support that you're describing. They don't get a credit card and all that stuff. The housing was prearranged, and there are limited amounts of supports for a very short while. And many people, uh, many of the Ukrainians that made their way here are being put up by people that were arranged by the Association for New, for New Canadians, not even the government. So they're not getting that kind of support that you describe. Okay, well, that's what I've heard, and I, do, I don't know. Like I said, I, I, uh, I just heard this, and I like uh, our government has gone. Uh, the old age pension now is going up in July, as far as I know, and you got to be seventy five. If you're not seventy five, you're not going to get uh, this uh, raise. That's right. That's old age security. For everyone 75 years and older, they got a one-time payment and a 10% increase for here on out. Yep. Yeah, uh, but now what's the difference in uh, 75 and 74? Nothing as far as I can tell. Um, like we asked these questions of the federal government, in particular Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland was on this show and we asked her directly. They make all sorts of arguments about as you get older, maybe there is more costs associated with your prescriptions and whatnot, but I'm not so sure how accurate that would be. This is basically a decision based on math. If they included everyone 65 plus, it would cost so much more. So they decided to make a cutoff at 75. Uh, that's as far as I can tell, sir, because if you're 67 and I'm 77 and we go into the grocery store, we have the exact same amount of stuff in our cart and it costs the same money. doesn't matter how old I am. Right, right. And uh, when it comes to... Issues being sick, uh, I got diabetes, I got arthritis, I got blood clots, and um, you name it, I almost got it. And uh, like I said, uh, the wife don't get any, I got to pay for her drugs. So um, now if there's two together, two 75 years together, two of them gets a raise, and there is one uh, with uh, just one income, you know, you're, it don't make sense. To me, and a lot of people are talking about it, and like I said, a lot of people is against the Ukrainians coming. I'm not. Uh, I think Canada is doing a wonderful thing to bring them in. I've heard a lot of discussion, and I was, like I said, fed up on it being disgraced like it is, because uh, if me and you were in their country, we'd want to get it up too. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm for them coming uh, to help them out, but... Like I said, I've been hearing that they get things that we don't get. You know, there's now, there's four different streams of uh, newcomers to Canada, whether it be your refuge, uh, refugee and naturalized immigrant on the pathway to permanent, citizen, permanent residency or pathway to citizenship. The stories that we're getting from the Association for New Canadians and others is that a remarkable number of uh, the arrivals have already gone to work, which is really yeah. good news because that's what we need and want them to do. And, yes. you know, so uh, there was a group of them that are already back at Memorial University. So hopefully what will happen is they will bring their skills and education and try to fill some of the gaps that we have here. And hopefully they get to work and learn English as a second language and pay their taxes just like the rest of us do. So that's the yeah. hope with any type of immigration to the country, isn't it? Well, we got some. Uh, um, I got on my own. I'm not going to down any money more. Uh, we got some of our own. It's too lazy to work. They don't want to work. Sorry, say that again. Pardon me, Matthew. Uh, we got some of our own people, and I got them in my own. Uh, like I said, that don't want to work. That's true. So uh, they're coming here. God bless them that they go to work. And I, I heard on the news yesterday some of us doctors and nurses. So that's something we need is doctors. Because uh, 
I could, we're supposed to have a family doctor, and the most we get is phone calls. Uh, you want to see a doctor, you can't see him anymore. you got to get a phone call. Then 10 days before you get to see him, and probably don't get to see him then, 10 days he'll phone you again. So uh, our health care is gone, and what is our government doing about it? It's a fair question. I mean, I know they've made some efforts on this front. It's not going to be a quick fix regardless of what politician, what party is involved. The biggest problem for me on that one, Matthew, is that it didn't come out of nowhere. We saw this happening. We knew it was coming, and yet yeah. here we are. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you there. What part of the province are you calling from, sir? Gander. And Gander, okay. Yeah, uh, and uh, the minimum wage goes up, uh, and it needs to go up. But when the minimum wage goes up, uh, groceries goes up, and gas has gone up, and hours don't go up, uh, we still get the same amount, and we still got to pay the same reason once it's going up so same for me it's it's uh you know don't make much sense uh we vote uh i wonder now well is there any good first vote because we, we're not getting we vote we still don't get nothing well i guess it depends on where you are who you are and your circumstance in life you know I, I guess we'll all have another opportunity to vote for our preferred politician and preferred party before long but I do appreciate your time this morning, Matthew. Hope you and the wife are well. Thanks for this. Okay, thank you very much. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, before we go to the news, let's go to line number one. Michaela, you're on the air. Hi, Mr. Daly. I, I was just listening to your VOCM news this morning, and I'm just wondering if you could uh, enlighten us just with a little bit more information about it. Okay. They were talking about uh, the ability of non-core fishermen to sell their license to augment their retirement and I'm not sure if it said to pass it on to a family member or just to sell it. And that this had to be signed by Thursday and they needed 500 signatures. And to date, they have um, over 300. I was just wondering if you could or if EOCM could give us just a little bit more information. I missed uh, where we have to go to sign that yep. because we do have family members that are in that situation they're a little bit older, and, you know, we hope that the license wouldn't have to die with them, that it could be passed on to a family member or, you know. And uh, I must say that uh, that really sparked my interest, and I'd be grateful to you. You're so informative. And, well, uh, I'll see what I can do. So this all came to pass when the COD moratorium was imposed back in 1992. The, the rationale behind it, I suppose, was to try to decrease the number of fishermen. Because remember the old adages people would go to, there's too many fishermen and too many plants, right? When, so when some of this happened in 1992, this policy was put forward. And you're right, non-core ground fish licenses, you cannot transfer them and you cannot sell them. When you die, the license dies. So the petition... It's a long web address, but I think the news story is going to be posted on our site, if not already, in the very okay. short order. And there's a link Thank right you. there at the bottom. Absolutely. Indeed, indeed, I will. And another thing I'd like to say, if I just could very quickly, sure. thank you for asking uh, the Premier this morning about information on the... Um, the, the the law symposium, the education law symposium that was held. That's that would be it would be very interesting to know what the results of that are. The reason I'm saying that is because we had a family member a few years back that anyway, we had to take her out of Newfoundland after she finished grade eleven and bring her to Ontario to do grade twelve. 
because the program that she was wanting to get into, they would not recognize Newfoundland and Labrador's curriculum. At that time, what we had to do was to get an audit of her complete program to date here in Newfoundland and Labrador, which we did, which I must, I might add was slightly challenging because uh, the people in the position did not want to release the, um, not didn't want to release, but were made it a little bit more difficult, I feel, than necessary to get because we had to get things such as um, she had done AP courses and we had to get, you know, who made up the exams, how were the exams administered, what types of calculators were used, were there any breaks during the exams, who coached them for the AP finals, were they delivered through the university, were they delivered through the high school, was it the regular chemistry teacher, you know, administering the AP chemistry exam, yada, 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 all those kinds of things. So anyway, when we realized that she, based on what she had done that far with the qualification, that if she would come to Ontario and do the grade 12 at, um, at, um, at a high school there, uh, that she would be accepted into her desired program. And that's what we did. So I'm just passing that on because she would have never had the ability that she had to go on and get direct entry into her program. And now she's very successful. And I will just, uh, I don't want to re reveal too much, but she is in the health field. Um, and we asked at that time, we asked the premier at the time if he would give her uh, a return to work, you know, as they were doing with other students and with other students who maybe only had gained their uh, permanent residency and were in the other medical fields, dentistry, medicine, veterinarian, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, at that time, no, she was refused, and she is a Newfoundlander born and bred, very proud. But unfortunately, like a lot of them, she is now in another part of the world, uh, doing very well, top of her class, uh, she graduated, and uh, very, very well done. Would have loved to have come home, but unfortunately, uh, you know, uh, the promises or whatever could not be given at the time even though we have a desperate need for her expertise and anyway so what has become of it well she's well established with a clinic of her own there and uh you know on the other side of the world now with uh you know uh, grandchildren i have my grandchildren there and uh, she's a lovely person very talented and anyway, that's my story. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm glad she's thriving. Unfortunately, it's elsewhere. I guarantee I will be following up on the uh, Learning Loss Symposium because I'm really curious as to what went on and how we're going to approach filling the gaps, ensuring that who needs support gets support and what kind of support is required. So no, and, I will do that and, for sure. And a, and a couple of her friends, you know, I just want to add to at the time, like they were very keen and, uh, you know, applied to the, the various uh, medical faculties and that and uh, they were not they were not certainly not garnered a seat a couple of hers a couple of her friends went away uh, two went to Ireland came back asked they were denied positions here her other friend he went to Harvard and they went on to Oxford University and again he was denied couldn't even do an internship here you know it goes on and then my brother who's a doctor he left because his son wants to go into medicine, yada, yada, yada. He left and is now out in British Columbia thriving, you know, uh, 
anyway, it's just too bad. It's just too bad that's the situation that we have here. And, and, and it's unnecessary. And, you know, for her area of expertise, I just want to say that um, uh, that people had to send, uh, you know, their people, their animals out of province to get the treatment that they wanted because they are in so dire need of her area of expertise. And anyway, that's how it is. That's I appreciate the time. I'm unfortunately late for the news. Yep. Okay. Thank you very much. Oh, and the story, Michaela, is on our website right now. Okay. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you for all you do. My pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, one of the issues playing the travel season was the lack of rental cars here in this province, and I think that's the case in many other parts of the country as well. To backfill some of that, Toro came to town, a ride-sharing application. It was ignited back in May. Showing us on line number three is the VP and Head of Canada's Operations for Toro. That's Cedric Matthew. Uh, good morning, Cedric. You're on the air. Hi, Cedric. Hi, Hi buddy. How are you? I'm doing well this morning. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, happy to have you on the program. Uh, let's start with just how many vehicles or people have registered their vehicle on Toro for this summer season. Yeah, well, we've been very impressed by how fast New Finlanders have uh, embraced peer-to-peer car sharing and, and Toro specifically. You know, we launched in the province only six weeks ago, and uh, we have um, more than 130 hosts now sharing their cars on the platform, and more importantly, more than 1,200 trips that have already been booked on the platform. Uh, so. You know, this makes it the most successful uh, launch for Toro in the province uh, to date, and uh, I think it shows how timely this launch was uh, and how important the role uh, we, you know, are now playing in helping people travel this summer, especially at a time when there are very few options available for people out there. Very few options and pricey, even if you can find a rental vehicle. There are some concerns. I wonder how many people would have registered if they were able to deal with their insurance company. I don't know what happens in other provinces, but uh, many people have contacted me and said they were more than happy to try to put their vehicle on uh, for this summer, and their insurance company told them they would void their policy if they did exactly that, even though we know uh, the relationship you have with an insurance company. Part of the commission you take pays for some insurance coverage while the vehicle is being rented. Is it different here than it is elsewhere? No, you know, I, w- I wouldn't say this. you know, the situation is different. Of course, we've been operating for longer in other parts of the country, in Ontario and Quebec and Alberta, for instance, where we've been operating for more than uh, six years now. Uh, you know, this is a new thing that we're doing and a new platform and a new uh, ways of using cars that Troy is providing. And so uh, insurance companies, uh, you know, have to uh, evolve the, the way they, they, they work a little bit around this. The way we sell for insurance is really by providing our own insurance, uh, you know, as part of every trip. Uh, so just as a reminder, we've partnered with Economical, uh, and we now offer uh, $2 million worth of liability coverage for every trip taken on the platform, really protecting uh, both the car, the host, and the guest, uh, you know, taking the car on the trip. Uh, now, it's true that, you know, when you uh, have your own car and want to list it on the platform, you should let your personal insurer know. Uh, and some insurers are, uh, you know, more aware of Thoreau than, than others. Uh, and so we have confirmed already that uh, insurers uh, like Johnson's or Anthony Insurance uh, are now allowing their policyholders to share their cards on Thoreau. Uh, and then more are, are coming. And we're talking to most insurers in the province to uh, really make sure that they're comfortable with it and that they let uh, everyone participate because we think that everyone should be able to participate in this great uh, opportunity. 
because, you know, these insurance companies or brokers would have, you know, uh, parent companies that would understand how the Toro works in other provinces. So hopefully between the role that you play and or the general public plays that, all the insurers would understand that there is coverage associated with uh, using the Toro as a rideshare app so that more people can indeed get in on the action and maybe make a few extra dollars this go around. Give us some idea what the return is for, say, for instance, if I wanted to put my vehicle on Toro and someone rents it for a week. What do the rates look like? What's the upside uh, for me for uh, so far as profit, say, for instance, goes? Yeah, well, it will really depend on the car you list, right? Because uh, every car is different. And that's one of the things people love about Throw is the wide variety of, of cars they can find on the platform. Uh, but to give you a sense, you know, over the past 12 months uh, across Canada, the average host on Throw has made roughly $800 a month uh, sharing the cars on Throw. Uh, but in touristic destinations, especially in the summer and the fall season, uh, to take an example in Nova Scotia, for instance, last year, last summer and last fall, uh, Turo hosts made on average $1,200 a month uh, sharing their cars on Turo. Uh, so, you know, this is a meaningful source of income for many people out there. And uh, we think that this season where a lot of people are turning to Turo because they, you know, they can't find a rental car anywhere, uh, you know, it's going to be very successful and, uh, you know, hosts are going to be able to uh, drive meaningful income from their uh, Turo activities. It would be a big opportunity for people here who maybe have the opportunity to put their vehicle on the application. So Toro also talks about vetting the guests. What does that mean? Simply looking at people's uh, driver's abstract or criminal records? What do you do when you're trying to vet a guest on my behalf? Yeah, we're, you know, we're, we're trying to really build as much trust as possible in the system. And the way we do that is, of course, to provide insurance for everyone, but also uh, by vetting uh, guests joining the platform. So. Uh, the way we do that uh, is that we look at a number of things. We validate the validity of the driver's license. We uh, make sure that, uh, you know, the people are uh, who they say they are, which is something very important when you're, you know, giving the keys to a car to someone you don't know. Um, you know, we're uh, evaluating their risk uh, based, based on a number of signals that we have, uh, you know, that they, uh, you know, give us through the sign-up process. And then from there, we make an eligibility decision uh, on whether they are able or not able to book. Uh, so every every guest is vetted, and it's, it's a big part of the uh, of the tour experience. On top of that, as a host, when you receive a request, uh, you're always in control, and you can, if you want, accept or decline the request. Uh, and so the ratings and review system that we have in the app is a very important uh, you know, part of that system as well to build trust in the platform. And for me, I have to have a certain age of vehicle, a certain amount of kilometers on the vehicle, what have you. Is there any difference in renting through Turo during the summer versus the winter? Because you can rent some parts in some parts of Canada and just have all-season tires on my rental car from Hertz or what have you. Is there any difference in renting winter and summer with your application? Uh, well, you know, there's no, I wouldn't say there's like a meaningful difference uh, between summer and, and winter. Uh, you know, you would uh, know in the, depending on where you book a car, you know, some provinces you have to have winter tires and some others you don't. And so, uh, you know, the, the cars will follow the local legislation and then you would find on the actual description of the car uh, all the details you need on, on uh, you know, what, what makes this car special. And so, uh, you know, you're very much in control of your experience and uh, you can, really book the car you want uh, for, you know, for the occasion that you want. And I think that's a really important part of the Toro experience as well. Well, hopefully uh, the appearance of Toro in Newfoundland Labrador has allowed for more people to continue on with their vacation plans versus some cancellations we heard simply because of the lack of rentals. It's good to have you on this morning, sir. Would you like to say anything else? 
No, no, I just uh, encourage everyone to, uh, to uh, you know, list the cars and participate. I think it's a great opportunity for uh, people to finally turn what was once uh, just a depreciating asset into uh, a really meaningful source of income. Uh, and so, uh, you know, welcome everyone to download our app and, uh, or visit our website on Toro.com. Appreciate your time this morning, Cedric. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Cedric Matthew, he's a VP and head of Canada's operations for Toro. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Medicare, or universal health care, came to this country on the 1st of July, 1962. To commemorate 60 years of Medicare, tonight, Monday the 27th of June, the Canadian Health Coalition will have a web event to talk about the origins and the quest for full comprehensive health care in this country. Join us on line number five as the chairperson of the Canadian Health Coalition. That's Anne Legacy Dawson. Uh, one moment, Jerry, get the right clicker. Good morning, Anne. You're on the air. <laughs> Nice to talk to you. Happy to have you on. I know you're a former radio host. I had my hand on the wrong clicker. Huh. <laughs> it happens. How does this thing work again? Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Uh, so welcome to the show. Right off the bat, you know, Medicare is mentioned in your news release. Is Medicare and universal uh, health care interchangeable or is one different than the other? No, they're all part of the same thing under the definition of the Canada Health Act. So there are five criteria. Those are two of them. And, uh, you know... I, it's important to celebrate that with all of its many flaws. Like, I'm sure lots of your listeners are thinking, yeah, but I got, you know, I sat in the eMERGE for X amount of time and I can't find a doctor. You know, there's lots of problems. But I found in some papers of my grandmother's that uh, they, they took her to the hospital at the end of uh, 1951 because she had heart problems. They ended up paying 400 bucks in Canadian dollars in 1951 to take her to St. Joseph's Hospital in Toronto. And uh, in today's dollars, that's $4,400. That's $4,400 to have her looked at. She died in February uh, the following year. And I, so just think about what that was like for families before healthcare was introduced, first in Saskatchewan, then New Brunswick, and then in the next 10 years right across the country. In fact, I think Labrador was one of the last. Like, it, it would have bankrupted families. It would have caused people to die. So we we have a system that protects us when we're super sick if you go to the emerge with a heart with heart symptoms or you're bleeding or you know you're going to be seen you might not get your knee replacement in a timely fashion but generally speaking the system is still largely functioning despite the pandemic so that's what we want to celebrate tonight and you talk about the full realization of medicare comprehensive coverage so there is expansion in dental care there's been upteen reports on pharmacare long-term care and what have you but the way the system is designed if it was just about money, we'd be getting uh, better positive health care outcomes. So before there was any additional talk about pharmacare, dental care, long-term care, is it also important to realize and to be honest with ourselves that the way we deliver health care in this country feels good? We dislocate our shoulders, pat ourselves on the back for universal health care, but it's not working the way it's intended. Well, it, it is and it isn't. See, that's the problem, Patty. Like, it, it, there, you know, I just mentioned that the, when you are in really bad trouble, you will be seen mm-hmm. and you will be attended to. It's the, it's the wait for the stuff that isn't as pressing. Now, if you have a horribly sore knee and you need a knee replacement, you're probably thinking, yeah, yeah, but I need help. I can barely walk. And you're right. So what's happened in many, in many jurisdictions is that the provinces haven't really stuck to the deal. They get money through the Canada Health Transfer, and then they don't put it into health care. They don't have strings attached with that money that comes from the feds for health care. And there's lots of problems in the provinces, so they sometimes siphon the money off to places where they think it should go. And in fact, there was just a survey done by Angus Reid that shows that 
the majority of Canadians right across the country are kind of losing faith in the provincial governments across the country's ability to administer health care when we just saw all those people die in long-term care facilities of COVID. So there's a real problem in terms of making sure that the money goes where it needs to go and that it's handled properly doing prevention, because a lot of us end up at the eMERGE when, in fact, we should be seeing a doctor that we can't get access to. So these are national debates that need to be had. And all the premiers are meeting in Victoria on July 11th and 12th. The Council of the Federations, and I'll bet you amongst the top three issues, if not the top issue, will be health care. And the provinces need to get their heads together because a lot of people are really not too keen on the way they've handled themselves the last couple of years. And some more national standards makes a bit of sense to me too, whether it be the transfer of licenses from province to province for doctors, for instance, as opposed to the paper warfare that you have to go through, even just to come to Newfoundland, Labrador to uh, perform a locum. So there's things that I don't quite get. Let's talk about Pharmacare. It's my understanding we're the only country on the face of the earth with universal health care and a population over 10 million without universal Pharmacare. The Senate has done so many reports, the most recent one the chair by Dr. Eric Hoskins. There is a consensus across the board that it shouldn't be based on your ability to pay, but your need. We know that, you know, employers that are currently offering some coverage, we don't need to let them off the hook. But people push back on this. Look, everything costs money, including national pharmacare. It's going to cost billions of dollars to implement. But with Canadians making a choice to refill a prescription or not, take half a pill versus a full pill, people are ending up in the hospital, the most expensive thing in this country. Give us your take on universal pharmacare because the billions, it's not like there's a net zero coming here or anything, but pharmacare has lagged so far behind us. People are so resistant to the idea of governments spending the money to implement it. Why? So the thing is that if we implemented it, it would actually be less expensive and more effective because what you said is exactly right, Patty. People end up in the hospital because they're not taking their meds because as soon as you step out of the hospital, your coverage, your, your drugs are covered when you're in hospital. But as soon as you step out, Many of us are on our own, and it's exactly true what you said. People get their prescriptions filled, they go home, they look at the timeline on it, they look at what they paid in co-pays and other forms of payment, and they think, oh my God, i got to stretch this prescription, or I, maybe I won't take my insulin today, or I won't take my heart meds today. There are all kinds of premature deaths caused by problems with administering medication. So I think partially the problem is that the pharmaceutical industry is a very effective lobby. They have gone up onto Ottawa, up onto the hill in Ottawa, and they have read the riot act to the federal government on this issue, especially during the pandemic when Pfizer and all these companies were just like running the show in terms of of production and administration of vaccines. So I think the feds are intimidated by that. But the fact is, over time, it would be a saving. And so the provinces and the feds need to get their heads together on this particular issue, which is exactly what you said. Canada is the only country, healthcare country, that doesn't have coverage of medication. It's completely crazy, and it's got to do with the power of big pharma. And we got to, you know, get ourselves together, get a little bit more gutsy, and take them on because some of us are getting really sick, and some of us may, in fact, be dying for lack of medication. It's completely outrageous. We've allowed the pharmaceutical company to create a competitive landscape. There's something like 100 public prescription drug plans in this country, 100,000 private plans. Drugs are the second highest cost after hospitals and headed uh, physician services. So we've allowed them to do this. Purchasing power would really go a long way to curbing the cost of these drugs and keeping people out of the hospital. So it's amazing that we can't, you know, sift through the powerful pharma lobby, but we know that they do carry an awful big stick. Uh, Well, so I would just say, Patty, like some of your listeners are thinking, oh, yeah, that's a good point. 
So we at the Canadian Health Coalition, which is like a coalition of uh, healthcare workers and unions and civil society groups like the United Church and Interparis and the Council of Canadians and numbers of other groups, like we are really pressing forward on pharma care because suddenly there's a window that opened because of this uh, um, co- uh, confidence and supply agreement between the NDP and the provincial and the federal Liberals, right? So suddenly there's the possibility of getting this done. Hoskins did an excellent report. There's also a draft bill that was put forward by the NDP. It's just in the waiting room, and there needs to be some public pressure to bring it about now that there's actually a legislative opening there now. They have enough votes to push it through. They need to defy big pharma and make sure that Canadians get that protection. No argument here. Maybe we could do something about the extent for the numbers of years for patent protection before we introduce the generic variety. Far more cost-efficient yeah. and the same effectiveness. So there's something I else. I see you've, been, you've studied this file. You know a lot about it. That's very good. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> I appreciate that. So, okay, <laughs> this is webinar. It's been all the rage. We've learned how to do an awful lot of stuff online. I'm Zoomed out personally, but uh, a <laughs> webinar is still an option. Yeah. So what do people need yeah. to know about this commemoration this evening? Okay, so people don't really realize that it's already been 60 years since uh, Medicare was pushed through in Saskatchewan by the Tommy Douglas government at that time. And people also may not remember that there was enormous pushback from the insurance companies and from the doctors who went out on strike. They actually walked off the job and some people died. They didn't get the care they needed in the eMERGE because the doctors were so pissed off about the introduction of health care in Saskatchewan. And uh, Louis Robbie's show in New Brunswick brought it in shortly thereafter. And then the federal liberals with Pearson and the NDP brought it in right across the country. It's a huge victory for people against the insurance companies and against those factions that were opposed to it. It's something to celebrate with all of its problems. We had a much lower death rate from COVID in Canada because we had access to vaccine, access to care. There were big problems with long-term care and other issues. But overall, it served us really well, healthcare. It's a reason to be proud, and we want to make sure that people get a chance to hear a bit about the history and about the future because I'm actually the chair of the coalition. I'm the media person. The chair is a registered nurse who practices as a nurse in a frontline hospital in Edmonton, and she's going to talk about some of the issues that the coalition is taking on to try and push forward on healthcare. Like we need to keep fighting for it. Don't give up on it and don't let private interests take it over. It's one of the things that most Canadians are most proud of. I was happy to give you a promotion to the chair's position, but okay, you're the media person, which is great. <laughs> I'll take a pay cut, yeah. Sorry uh, about you know, just last, you know, random thought for me on that stuff. You mentioned access as it pertains to COVID. It's too bad we don't have national standards for testing as well, because if there's going to be the yeah. need for long COVID clinics, if you didn't get a positive PCR test, like, for instance, in this province in the last number of months, how are you going to prove you had COVID? So yeah. some of these things, you know, where some right hand know what the left hand's doing, a bit more cooperation between provinces would probably be very very helpful uh good luck with this tonight any more details the folks need to know before we say goodbye well if you go on the website of the canadian health coalition so the initials are chc canadian health coalition you can find the zoom link it would be great if people tuned in because we have this historian from the university of new brunswick a woman named nicole o'byrne who's done a lot of really interesting research on how ferocious the opposition to health care was and how perseverant Tommy Douglas and Louis Robichaud were to bring it in. And then Pauline is going to talk about, the chair of the coalition, going to talk about the current fights over things like pharmacare and what people can do to support those struggles. Because we, we, we fought for it. We got it because people got up in arms about it. Like Tommy Douglas himself almost died for lack of health care. 
And we need to keep fighting for it, like not to give up on it. It's one of the greatest things about Canada, the most beloved social program we have. Great to have you on the show, Anne. Thanks for this. Anytime. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Take My care. Pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Anne Legacy Dawson with the Canadian Health Coalition. All right, that was pretty good. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's try line number two. Norman, you're on the air. Uh, how are you this morning, sir? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm doing all right. Enjoying the nice summer day that we got here in Newfoundland. Lovely. Uh, anyway, Patty, my topic today is I heard people talk a few times about the Ukrainian people coming over there from that war over there. Right. Uh, my understanding is a lot of them people that are coming over from that area is uh, well-educated people, and they had uh, good jobs, and they were living in, a, you know, they were productive people, I heard. They're, most of them that are being taken from that country, they're, they're not just going over there. My understanding is, and letting everybody that's over there over here, they're picking out choice people, people that are educated and people that, you know, they had a foundation, they had their own business, things like that. That's what they're, that's what they're taking. And uh, most of our visitors that are coming from Ukraine, usually wherever they come from, they don't usually stay here very long because it's too damn cold for them here. Yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen how long any of these uh, newcomers will stay in the province. We've done a little bit better job. I'm not exactly sure why uh, when it comes to the retention uh, component of immigration. But I don't know what to say to that because I don't think anybody knows how long people are planning to stay. The one difference here, I think, might be that... So many of them came at the same time. So they've already established a little Ukrainian community in different parts of the province, whether it be Bay St. George. I know there's a bunch of arrived in Labrador City. So that is one of the issues that immigrants have faced, is that there wasn't years ago many people that looked like them with the same culture and traditions as them. And so consequently, they made their way to the Montreals and Torontos and Vancouver's, places where they knew there were more and more people from their background. Whereas so many Ukrainians came at the same time on the same flight that they've already established those, some of those relationships, which I think will help in uh, trying to keep some of them to stay. Yes, and not only that either. It's, you know, like you take it, man. Like we live in a peaceful country, Canada do. Like, you know, we, we don't have to worry about one government fighting against another government here, right? Because it's never going to happen. But uh, over there, what's happening over right now in Ukraine, the same thing that happened over in the Middle East when they leveled that city over in Libya, whatever it is, they leveled it. They killed all them people, hundreds of thousands of innocent people, died because of one government fought against another government for power. And now the same thing is happening over in Russia. Russia basically was being destroyed by uh, Ukraine because they were right, in, right with NATO and right up with the UK doing well with themselves. The country was doing very, very well. Russia was doing poor. So Russia went to war and said, no, Ukraine, we're stopping you now. But the worst part about it all is the innocent civilians that don't have nothing to do with the people that are running countries. Okay. I'm not sure where to take that, but... You know, uh, there's when people have questions about immigration, it's fine to have questions in this world. Absolutely. I just find it unfortunate that sometimes the conversation goes to worst case scenario at the very beginning. And then all of a sudden someone's called a racist. And the next thing you know, we're not having a discussion anymore. We're arguing about stuff. We're just firing barbs at each other. Uh, anything else you wanted to say about it this morning, Norman? 
Yeah, yeah. One more little thing sure. right now. Right now I'm watching it too, and uh, the countries uh, supporting Ukraine are giving them a lot of hardware to fight the Russian people. I don't think that's a very good thing. I think that's only going to bring more darkness into our world, myself. Anyway, you have a good day, sir, and be safe, and chat later. Thanks, Norman. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Will I get uh, Kate before the break? Let's go to, oh, yeah, Kate, line number three. Good morning, Kate. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? Uh, Well, I'm very upset today. What happened? Uh, I've got a husband and a son in the Anglican Cemetery here in Brooklyn, deceased, of course, and... uh, I had two of those, maybe you know what I'm talking about, have big, not clear bulbs. They're white, and they're fairly big, put on their graves. They light up at night, and it's revolving lights. turns all different colors. So it looks beautiful, looked beautiful, I should say. Well, since Tuesday, the two of those has gone missing. So, I'm a widow, I'm 81 years old, and yes, I put them there myself, paid for them and had them put there. A lady got them and put them there for me. And uh, she looks after things for me. Mm -hmm. But who could stoop low enough to go in a cemetery and do that? They're the lowest of the low. I mean, we hear stories like this way too often. I just don't understand. No. You know, you'd think with the, just some of the reverence that we should be showing to the sacred grounds and people's old personal belongings and their tributes to their loved ones, I just don't know how anybody can bring it upon themselves to kick over a headstone or to steal those bulbs. Or there was another story on the show last week or the week before where someone stole some of the uh, the items that one family had placed around in the grave. I just don't know what to say to these people. It's just purely disgraceful. It's terrible. It it's is. terrible. I am distraught. I told someone last night, I said, I got one leg chewed off my table tonight. (laughs) No doubt. Uh, And I'm really sorry it happened to you. Yeah. And someone said, well, are you going to replace them? I said, well, that's a big question. I mean, what's the use in me paying that kind of money to, to have them replaced just for some? No kids did that. That was adults. I don't know. No no child got in that cemetery and took those. That is adults doing that. Or, uh, no, they're, they're not reliable adults. I don't know what to call them. They're nuisances. Nuisance to the community. Now, they're probably not from our community. Lord knows where they're from. But I, I'm giving them a warning. You know who you are. Take those bulbs and go back. Put them on those two graves and hope for the best. I don't want to know who you are. I don't want to know. Uh, Hopefully they or someone who knows the people who stole them will pass along your message, and I hope that happens, Kate. I appreciate your time, and I'm really sorry that you're going through this. I hope so, and thank you very much for taking my call. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. 
Man, what are people like? Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the Cod Moratorium. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Betty, you're on the air. Yes. Hi, Betty. Hi, Betty. Uh, that uh, problem I was having uh, don't seem like I'm getting anywhere with. Which problem was that? I'm sorry. Phone company. Oh, sorry to hear that because we did indeed put you on to someone at Bell, didn't we? Yeah, and uh, they never got back to me. Okay, let me follow up one more time for you. Okay. Is that all we needed to talk about today, Betty? Uh, well, you know, last year we I had those uh, all those books for you. We had to get them to you. Oh, to bring down to the to long term care. Yeah. Yeah. That one slipped through the cracks. Uh, if I put you on hold, will you give Dave your address, and I'll see if I can straighten that out sooner than later? Okay, then. Okay, I'm going to put you on hold. You'll speak with David now in a second. Okay, okay. thanks. Bye, Betty. All right, let's go to line number one. Wilford, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad. Thanks about you. Yeah, Wilford, but today uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm going to go back in time a little bit now, uh, back to the moratorium. And you mentioned the moratorium on cod, which is true, but it's also the moratorium on turbot. Because cod and turbot was two of the main fishers in Newfoundland at that time for uh, deep water fisher, what we used to call the long liner fleet, and uh, we lost at the same time. If, uh, if we hadn't lost uh, turbot, other people could have carried on fishing. No, uh, you was talking to Ryan uh, yesterday, I believe, and uh, Friday. He's talking about uh, we're going to have a meeting there in uh, Delta Hotel on Thursday. And uh, Ryan was there, certainly, and I was there at the same time, but we were in different rooms. Uh, Ryan was in with the elite, and we were out with, uh, I don't know what, we were all in a room, stuck together, the fishermen, looking at a monitor, and wondering what in the hell was going on, like a bunch of, I don't know, we feel like a bunch of dodos, didn't know what we were there for. And anyway, uh, that happened a long time ago, and uh, 30 years now, and certainly parts of the provinces, uh, to 33 years since they caught a cod and uh, it's time I think for the, the people now in Newfoundland, Labrador and Canada to try to get together and uh, try to do something about it because uh, I mean uh, we in 30 years what have we what have we gained what have we done we've done nothing we just let the let the, the ocean stay with what it is in a, a terrible mess my question this morning, when are we going to address the problem in our oceans? Because it can be addressed and it can be fixed. I'm damn well sure of that. But so far, I haven't seen anybody willing, uh, any politician in Ottawa or Newfoundland, willing to take it on or try to do anything with it. I don't even want to talk about it. So, you know, I don't know. Probably when all our oil is gone and everything else uh, may be important then, but it's going to be too late. There'll be nobody left on the island. No, uh, Patty, what would I like to see I like to see people come out that's concerned about the fishery, attend the meetings, and come up with some kind of a plan or something that we can move forward. I mean, 30 years is long enough now. Everybody is in a rut and doing nothing. It's time for us to look, uh, look ahead, I think, and try to get something done with it. As we know right now, with the war in Ukraine over there and the world, now there's, there's millions of people in the world going to starve because of this war. And uh, the oceans are just as important as the farms on land. And if they're not producing, I mean, we're not going to survive. You know, so it's a terrible thing to do. 
Well, I mean, there just hasn't been a strategic approach to rebuilding the stock. I mean, there just hasn't been. Now, there's all sorts of implications, some of which we don't have a whole lot of control over, whether it be sea ice or sunlight or phytoplankton and the rest of it, but there hasn't been a comprehensive plan to rebuild the stock. And why that's the case, I have no idea. But 30 years later, about time someone figured it out. Yeah, the, the, the problem is, uh, it's like in, right in the beginning. I mean, we, I, we entered Confederation back in 49, was it? Yep. And uh, I was a young lad then. You could fish anything in the ocean. You didn't want a license or nothing. And there's no limit on nothing. And uh, I never in my wildest dreams would I think that now, in 2022, we got to go Ottawa with cap in hand to try to get a, a, a get permission each year to go ahead and get a card to put on your table and uh, let them tell you when you can do it and how many you can catch. I mean, that's that's the situation we're going in now. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just awful, terrible, terrible, terrible. It's up, you know, and these oceans, can, I'm I'm convinced that the oceans can be brought back. There's certain things we got to deal with, and we got to deal with them. Uh, there's no good going with this. Well, we can't deal with this because it might affect something else. We got to forget that bullshit. And uh, think about uh, all the people beyond us, our, our children and grandchildren, everything else. Pardon? I didn't say anything. Uh, oh. But uh, because of the time on the clock, you've had the last word. I'll give you a couple of seconds to wrap it up before I have to run, Wilfred. Yeah, well, I just want to say to people out there who's interested like I am and concerned about the fish you and I have been for a good many years, let's get together and try to do something better. And put pressure on our politicians to do something. Thank you, Patty. Appreciate your time. Take good care. All right, bye-bye. And that's uh, Thursday at the Delta, right? Uh, Good show today. Uh, Big thanks for everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.